From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. This is a special episode of Frankly Speaking, highlighting the science behind the advantages and disadvantages of intensively managed turf grass systems. In scientific terms, we describe the benefits of turf as ecosystem services, such as pulling carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in the soil, known as sequestration. And then we have the disadvantages of turf that we call disservices, and that's things like burning fossil fuels for mowers or making fertilizers. My guests today on this journey through the science of this topic are... Claire Phillips. I'm a research soil scientist with USDA ARS, currently stationed in Pullman, Washington. And... Alec Kovaleski, a turfgrass specialist at Oregon State University. Before we get started, let me thank my sponsors first, Dryject, that's been with me from the beginning in 2015. I walk on over 100 golf courses a year across the country, and I can always tell when a superintendent really understands how sand-based systems work. And often the best superintendents use Dryject sand injection services. Getting coarser particles fully injected into the profile will improve drainage and help develop firmer surfaces. Contact your local Dryject representative or visit dryject.com. Next are my friends at the Plant Food Company, and specifically Grant and Tom, who set a tone of professionalism that is expressed in their products. Excellent products that meet their customers' needs at a fair price and service the heck out of them. If you are putting your nutrient management plan together this fall, for next year, or getting ready for the golf season in the desert, contact your local plant food rep or visit plantfoodco.com. Finally, our new sponsor this year, Frost Spray Technologies. Ken Rost and his team provide the type of products that are what you need today for your spray program, and they're ready for your needs for tomorrow's spray programs. A lifelong interest in spray technology has led Ken to starting Frost, and the innovation keeps coming. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. And let's start with full disclosure on my part here. I think I need to disclose this to my audience. I know no one listens, but if they're listening, I love Oregon. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love the state of Oregon. Uh, I loved when I was watching the track and field meets at Eugene this year. Oregon was running ads about the rocks and the dirt that people should come out and see in Oregon. And I think it's partly because... The first person I ever met from Oregon was Tom Cook. As you know, Alec, Tom was your predecessor. And Claire, I don't know if you had the pleasure or have had the pleasure of meeting Tom. He still wanders around. I hear things about his front lawn every once in a while. So full disclosure, uh, I'm in love with Oregon and Oregon State University and honestly have been so pleased to see the program uh, continue, Alec, under your leadership uh, the last bunch of years. It was in and out a bit for a while now it looks like you guys are settled in. And really, I think I just embarrass you from the start. You know, one of the solid turf grass programs west of the Mississippi. I mean, there aren't a lot of them with the breadth and depth that you guys are doing. So now that we got my love affair with your state and your program out of the way, let, let's start with why we're here today. I, I've always had a very big interest in talking about turf grass as a larger part of land use and how it can be valued for its potential ecosystem services. So, Claire, when I say ecosystem services, um, as a soil scientist and as a student of the area, where do you begin to think about, how do you describe that to people when they ask you over a a nice glass of Pinot in the Willamette Dammit Valley? 
Ecosystem services are the functions that ecosystems provide that make our lives better and our world more habitable. By way of example, soils help to purify water, capture contaminants, providing habitat and biodiversity of plants and insects and animals. It's another ecosystem service. We're going to be talking about carbon sequestration, so that's certainly a key one. We also kind of couch within that now minimizing the environmental effects of agriculture or intensive land use. So the idea of minimizing how much nitrogen is lost from a golf course, that is also an ecosystem service that can be provided by managing the system. Okay. So Claire, you uh, senior authored this paper about carbon sequestration. Let's take a minute and talk about this, but I'll start with, I said I would maybe, you know, we can't venture into this area, but As a soil scientist, you know, admit it, right? You like grass systems, don't you? (laughs) I do. (laughs) I knew it. I knew you were a closet grass person. So why does a soil scientist really like grass systems so much? I I know, but I'm wondering if how you elaborate on that love affair we all have with grass and soil. Okay, you nailed it. Because I'll be honest, so I got my PhD in forestry and worked in natural systems. And I came over to the ARS in 2015 working with grass seed growers. And it took me a while to realize that as far as cropping systems go, you can't really get more low input and more of a system that is building up soil than perennial grass production, right? Yeah. So that carries over into turf too. We're growing perennial grass, which is very effective at putting its photosynthase down into the soil, which turns into soil organic matter. And as I worked on this paper, there were some ahas. And one of them was, wow, cool season grasses are incredibly productive in the winter and the shoulder seasons. And that's something that we got to observe. Actually, we're doing some field measurements in Corvallis, too, where we're actually measuring rates of photosynthesis. Mm. So seeing that the grass is really green in January in Corvallis when everything else is dormant, I was like, whoa, yeah, this grass is actually kind of doing the heavy lifting of uh, keeping carbon coming into the biosphere. Yeah. And actually, now I'm hearing unpublished data, but reports of similar findings in the Indianapolis area and in the Northeast where they're doing photosynthesis measurements of turf grass there too. It's like, wow, compared to other systems, turf is really assimilating a lot of carbon in the cool season. Boy, that's a big aha there. Let's take the next step in that nice uh, description you made where grasses are making photosynthates, like all green plants are doing it, but they're partitioning a lot of that into the soil, building organic matter, right? So let's talk about this because there's two issues now that sort of matter and sort of get to this paper. One is when you plant a new system, everybody knows this, especially in sand-based systems, there tend to be very low organic matter, and it can take, I think, Rock Aswa's work with sand-based systems in Nebraska, bentgrass in Nebraska, probably said by maybe eight years or so, you had enough organic matter that through general nitrification, just, you know, processing of nitrogen out of organic matter into the nitrogen pool, that that would probably supply a fair amount of what the bentgrass plants needed during the season, provided they had a 
generally a healthy microbiome, which most grass systems do. They are different when they're young and then they age. So let's start a little bit about laying down organic matter when the system is under 10 years, because the paper really identifies the number of studies you looked at that clearly showed something in the first 10 years oftentimes doesn't occur past that. Yeah. So what you're pointing out is one of the really important take-homes about carbon sequestration in turf. And really, when we think about carbon sequestration in any system, and we think about carbon markets and paying producers to store carbon, it starts high when you start implementing a new practice where you're trying to build up organic matter. So the rate of storage and the amount of carbon you're putting away every year, it starts high and it decreases through time. I'm going to back up a little bit and just give a nod to all the work that I built off of in this review paper. It was not original data. I was pulling together data sets that others produced. And the first person to really look at this question of carbon sequestration and turf was Yaling Qian at CSU. And what she did was put together historic soil testing data from multiple golf courses that were different ages. So in putting together this data set, she got a time series of how soil carbon is changing over time. And if I can kind of paint a verbal picture of what that shows. So if you've got your carbon stocks on your y-axis and time on the x-axis, it's going up linearly at first and then it's leveling off. And that is a real salient feature of how soils work is when you start adding organic matter, you're upregulating the microbial community. There's greater microbial biomass, and then they decay the added organic matter more quickly. And so you reach a new equilibrium where you're no longer building up stocks after a certain time. Whatever is coming in gets burned off more quickly. Okay, so let me stop you there because that's a beautiful mental picture that we want everybody to digest because they're not watching us on News Channel 8 where we can draw, you know, the X and the Y axis and show the graph. Yeah. But essentially, it, you know, it starts steep and then it just flattens off. It's very uh, interesting to hear the equilibrium that gets reached. And I was a student of Yai Ling's when she first started publishing this thing. I think, wasn't Ron Follett with the USDA uh, at CSU when they did the work? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing that happens is very unique in the sense of where it happens. So you outlined the time frame perfectly. But as we know, our grasses tend to be uh, maybe more shallow-rooted than a forest system would be. But my favorite little thing here was, boy, our grass systems actually compete and show really well when we look at them compared to other land-use systems, other than forests, of course. Can you talk a little bit about depths and comparatively how much carbon we grab in compared to other systems? You know, that is another really important takeaway from this study is the first one is that, yeah, these carbon sequestration rates, they go down over time. But the initial sequestration, especially when I summarize all the studies that looked at turf that was established less than 10 years ago. So that initial sequestration was really high. I compared our average number for turf systems to average numbers from different conservation practices, some of which are eligible for carbon credit payments. So 
For instance, when cropland is converted into grassland, say for as part of a conservation reserve program, that's only 62% of the sequestration rate that we found for turf systems. Implementing cover crops in a cropping system, that sequestration rate was 23% of turf grass systems. Wait, hold on. (laughs) I'm in Ithaca, New York. And we study agriculture here at Cornell, and I have a lot of people telling me all the time about regenerative agriculture and the importance of cover cropping for bringing carbon into the system. I could have sworn I just saw a paper that actually was published and written about in one of the crop science quick summaries that showed cover crops maybe don't bring so much carbon to the system as we might have thought Am I, uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to be a zealot for turf grass systems because I know we're going to talk to Alec about some of the issues we create to have turf grass systems, but are cover crops overrated? (laughs) (laughs) I think of cover crops as a technology and all farming is really local. And so that technology has to be figured out for each individual farm and setting. So it's really hard to make generalizations. Mm. There's certainly been really impressive results with cover cropping. And the idea of having more plant material growing throughout the year makes a lot of sense that it's going to bring more carbon into the soil. And there's other benefits in terms of erosion and so forth. Of course, I'm being a bit facetious when I say it, but it, it was surprising to see how good turf grass systems were compared to some of these others, huh? I was very surprised. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I know while you liked grass, like many, you may not have been so sure about lawns and golf courses and sports fields and things like that. So while we all share a love for grass systems, turf grass systems are unique within the grass system world, right? You were in seed production, another aspect of turf grass systems, right? Was it turf grass seed production or just general grass seed production? Turf and forage, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So now we have a clear picture of time and space. What else is important from this study, Claire, before we get to Alec and a bit of the, we don't want to say dark side, but the disservice things that happen for some of these carbon benefits to occur? Let's just start with maybe sort of the various studies. There were a number of studies that you looked at. This is a meta study, which means it's a study of studies. Were there particularly anything regionally that you noticed in any of the carbon sequestration work that's worth our listeners hearing about if they're in those particular areas. I, is it just cool season? Was it just cool season systems or where do our warm season systems fit into this from a carbon sequestration perspective? This study covered cool and warm season, you know, but most of the studies, almost entirely it was in the United States. We just had a couple international studies that provided the data that we were looking for. You know, unfortunately it wasn't super international. We really didn't have studies in the tropics outside of, we had a couple data sets from Miami and subtropical kind of uh, Georgia. So I wasn't able to parse out differences between cool and warm season. The one regional thing that jumped out All the studies where there was a loss of soil carbon following turf grass establishment 
they had been previously enforced right. or they had likely been previously enforced given the prevalence of forests around the areas where they're located. And you also noted that there's some data that shows a wooded suburban landscape, you know, versus a plain lawn versus a landscape that has trees in it is significantly better. So, yeah. so I hate to admit it, but trees do have some importance, right? When you're trying to grow grass, Claire, you have to understand, we we start twitching when we see too many trees near grass, right? Alec will tell you, we because it limits, you know, the kinds of performance we can get out of these systems, particularly when people demand them. But lawns is a different story. So whether it's forest systems that have a lot of organic matter, when you put them into grass systems, you lose that organic matter. Yeah. So that's the opposite side of it. But you can also put a couple of trees back in and enhance it a bit again. Yeah, certainly there were data sets that showed that it, from residential lawns that if there were trees and grass together, they accumulated carbon more quickly and they reached a final higher stock than just grass alone. Yeah. Okay. So let's try to make the transition to the conversation with Alec and start it with this. When carbon stocks or when the rate, as you showed in your data, when the rate is then zero or not very much as it was, you know, it flattens out. You're just not adding more into the system. It's reached equilibrium. So what you're saying is, first off, the plant may be putting in more carbon, but the microbial population is degrading it so rapidly, or it's just, there's no more being stored, at least in theory, as the models say. It's not accumulating anymore. The microbes are breaking it down. The stocks aren't building. Yes? That's right. Okay. Then you just have the turf serving as a nice store of carbon, but it's not building anymore. Okay. Then that means if we are looking at a carbon budget, right? Which is if we feel like we're taking it out of the atmosphere and that's a good thing. The question is, what is the disservice we have to then employ to get that carbon sequestration? And when is it net zero or when is it actually allowing that steady state store to be enough to compensate for the emissions? And Alec, maybe I'll give it to you one more time, Claire. How would you set it up for Alec to come in? The setup is when we think about the climate impact of turf, it's not just about carbon sequestration. There's all the other emissions that come from mowing and that are associated with fertilizer. And those are the gifts that keep on giving. <laughs> <laughs> Even once the system has leveled off, isn't accumulating carbon anymore, those emission sources continue. So obviously, how we manage these turf grass systems is going to impact the potential disservice that we're doing and then work against the good we do sequestering carbon. Nitrogen fertilization being a component of it. I know mowing is a big component and anything where fossil fuel is burned. And I know you and I uh, worked on a paper uh, a couple of years ago during COVID <laughs> where we talked about sort of minimum requirements of what you needed to mow stuff. So let's start with that, Alec. How do you look at mowing and nitrogen fertilization as maybe two of the things on the Mount Rushmore of disservice if we made one? Sure. So when we consider cultural practices, Frank, before we get into the intricacies of those cultural practices, we had a second review paper that was also published. It was 
drafted by a, a postdoc in my lab, Ru Ying Renny Wong. And this was looking at carbon sequestration in turf grass soil systems. And in this paper, Rennie continued on with the conclusion that Claire came to that turf grass was generally carbon neutral. And then a little more dissection from Rennie's research is that most areas of turf grass are carbon neutral or a carbon sink with the exception of golf course putting greens and athletic fields. And that ties directly back into your question of cultural practices here. So the more intensively managed the system is uh, with our research. So we also have field trials at Lewis Brown Farm where we go out and do different mowing heights and frequencies, irrigation rates and fertility rates. Uh, As we increase the intensity of the cultural practices, we do see faster carbon sequestration. However, we have this uh, carbon budget associated with the cultural practice. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you have to make the fertilizer using the harbor process. We use a lot of the synthetic nitrogen. That's a really expensive part of your cultural practices. Another one is your mowing using uh, fossil fuel driven mowers. So Claire and I noodled on these ideas and two things that we think would have huge impacts on turf grass management is if you could decrease your nitrogen rates, use organic nitrogen sources or organic fertilizer sources, and then if you could use mowers that had electricity driven by solar or wind power. So you're reducing down the emissions for the cultural practices, getting your cultural practices in an IPM or, or best management practice type program, and then looking at ways to reduce the carbon associated with those cultural practices. That's brilliant. My first question goes to the nitrogen stuff. Are we sure that organic nitrogen is better than the Haber-Bosch synthetic nitrogen? Do we know that the production of organic sources, you know, emits less embodied in it, right? That embodied energy that we think about involved in making those products. Do you have data? I'm sort of wondering, Alec, I I hadn't heard that before. And I'm wondering if you guys know for sure that organic N has a smaller carbon footprint than synthetic N. So you ask a wonderful question here, Frank, and you're going to keep making manure, right? (laughs) You have these cattle, the cattle are raised to make food. And milk, people are not going to stop eating. People are not going to stop drinking milk. We're going to continue to have this accumulation of manure. What do we do with this manure? The manure has nutrients in it. We can either let it pile up somewhere or we can apply it to the landscape as a cultural practice and a recycling technique. So there is carbon associated with that, but who's responsible for that carbon? Is it the farmer that grew the grass, which was then harvested and fed to the cattle? Is it the farmer who is raising the cattle and milking the cow? Or is it, you know, the truck that takes the fertilizer to the golf course after it's been composted? It's part of a recycling system here. We're not taking nitrogen from the air, burning extra fossil fuel to compress the air to make that nitrogen. We're just recycling thing that's part of our human processes. 
Okay, you got me there. That's pretty good because I know as the owner of livestock at Belcanto Farm, I know how much manure uh, animals can accumulate. And I know how much um, our community of friends enjoy coming over and collecting uh, the compost after about 18 months uh, in the Rossi pile. So second that, there definitely should be opportunities. I think Marty Petrovic's work with Doug years ago was pretty clear. We want to be careful about these high nutrient compost materials, particularly into urban environments. We oftentimes take that pollution from those ag areas and then bring it into urban suburban areas. But let's stay with the golf courses, Alec, because you, you know, made a couple of really interesting statements. The more intense systems like putting greens and fairways, uh, for example, you know, are obviously uh, more energy intensive. And as we burn that fuel or use that fertilizer to produce that playing surface, uh, we're working against our carbon stores. And so getting more time between fertilizations, particularly if you don't have a lot of traffic, being maybe more targeted with your nitrogen in areas of high traffic to spot use your nitrogen. These are progressive ways to do it, but is it really the simplest thing is to just not fertilize as much area that maybe the putting greens, okay, you're treating a few acres, but isn't some of our objection, Alec, to the 20, 30 acres of fairways, another 30 to 70 acres of rough. Isn't that where some of the biggest savings can be found on golf? Yeah. And I think, Frank, I think this is a great sell to a superintendent. We're trying to breed turf grass that's more sustainable, particularly for these low traffic areas. You take that sustainable grass that requires less inputs And then you also are making a part of the golf course that is capable of sequestering more carbon because you're reducing the inputs associated with it too. So you're right. I think once we get past the putting green, we should think of these as pretty much all low input areas. What is the grass species that we can use to have the lowest input? And then what are the cultural practices we can also do to further reduce down our carbon budget? Perfect. Claire, I want to bring you back in, if you don't mind, because I want to talk about soil organic matter, particularly when it comes to breaking down the organic matter into nitrogen that the plants can then use to grow. We know this happens a bit better when the system is warm and not limited by moisture, right? Yeah. We have a fair amount of golf courses in areas where both of those things are not limiting. Generally, we get warm, you know, 65 degrees or so where the soil will be warm for five or six months in the north to that temperature, maybe seven. And generally, we get adequate rainfall. I've often thought and wonder what you think. Can just keeping a older turf grass system well watered be able to mineralize enough nitrogen to support that system? As Alex said, maybe under low demand, low traffic. Can you imagine a system where simply having water available to keep that soil functioning would then be able to compensate for any reduction we'd want to make in overall fertilization, organic or synthetic? Yeah, what you just described, Frank, is makes so much sense. And I think it's still, that's one of those ideas that's really still kind of at the cutting edge, which is 
oh yeah, we should account for the nitrogen that's just naturally turning over when we think about what our fertilizer requirement is. We have those soil tests, you know, potential nitrogen mineralization tests. Some laboratories can do those. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the challenges we had in this meta-analysis was when we were trying to estimate the maintenance emissions, we had to have a lot of conversations about what fertilization rates to assume people used. Mm. (laughs) Because... It's really all over the place. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we ended up going with the PACE turf model. That's a temperature-based model to try and get a nitrogen requirement. And for the homeowner, those rates might be high. We know that a lot of homeowners aren't fertilizing at all. So it was one thing that emerged from our study, too, is that the biggest carbon cost is nitrogen fertilizer use. It's the production of the nitrogen. And then it's also the N2O emissions or microbial emissions that increase when you fertilize. If we kept doing that, let me follow it to its natural progression, because I think, you know, we're getting better at dialing in our nitrogen rates now. Being more precise maybe is a better scientific term. Being more precise with our nitrogen moving forward Would there be a point where if we stopped putting any supplemental nitrogen fertilizer, where we will have mineralized so much N out of that system that it's depleted and then more is required? I mean, do we have the same ideas about nitrogen stocks in that organic matter that we have for the carbon stock that's there? You know, with the perennial system that is putting clippings back, I would think that you could get away with pretty low nitrogen rates. But I'm not a turf specialist. So. There you go. And, and Alex, so I'm more of the opinion that if we can get by with no fertilizer, uh, especially in low traffic areas, be more precise, that's going to be good. And I, and I think, you know, a, a little bit of irrigation, although it does work against good playing conditions sometimes, uh, we do like to keep our systems dry. What are, What are your thoughts on considering the nitrogen in the soil when you're building your nitrogen fertilizer programs? To answer this question, I have to step back and think about like my introduction to turf grass management class. What are the three big things we want out of turf grass? We want function, which would be carbon sequestration. We also want it to be recreational meaning we can play on it. And then the third thing is aesthetics. There is an aesthetic value related to turf grass. So as the nitrogen levels go down, you know, we have a system now that is becoming more and more nutrient deficient. It's more susceptible to disease. It recovers from traffic less. And then the aesthetic value goes down. So it's just like terrifying your putting greens. The golfers hate it, but it's one of those necessary evils we have to do in turf grass management. I'm so glad you brought that up. So we we have to fertilize because if you don't, your greens committee is going to come out and they're going to say, why do the greens look so bad? Why do we have so much anthracnose, so much microdosium patch? Why does this spot here traffic out all the time? It's a balance between all these different ecosystem services, aesthetic function, recreation. We have to make so many people happy. So somewhere we have to find compromises. 
What is the lowest nitrogen rate we can get down to to sustain the turf grass and then provide a system that's sequestering carbon as well? So there's two things here. One is the new normal for prices of things like nitrogen fertilizer and grass seed is making people scrutinize these expenses, these routine expenses, uh, more closely because they're taking bigger parts of the overall budget. So let's set that aside. And you mm-hmm. brought up aerification, and I got a soil scientist who knows about organic matter, and I got a turf scientist who knows how much our industry loves to drive metal in the ground, loves to drive. It is the solution to every problem in turf grass systems, aerifying that soil. I think the lawn care industry is even taking it a step further that they've, I would call it gratuitous aerification, aerification that's really not needed many times. Claire, when I core cultivate and I make a bunch of holes, which maybe you've been out to the farm out there and seen it in the past, when I make holes and get a whole flush of air in there, um, one of the things I know is I get this surge of growth many times on the other side. I think we made those microbes really happy with a lot, quite a bit more air than they're used to. They got plenty of water and now they're recovering And you see this whoosh of growth that I just assumed had something to do with some microbial behavior. But my question is, are we gassing off those soils, too, when we poke holes like that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, any soil disturbance is stimulating microbial activity, just as you described. And this is moving a little away from golf courses, but there's been in the news a lot of folks removing their lawns just because of there not being enough water. Mm -hmm. And I see videos of mechanical (laughs) removal of lawns, and I think, okay, there goes all the carbon (laughs) that was built up. (laughs) That's exactly right. You actually say it in the paper, too, that lawn removal, any of these things that are stripping off, it's much better to solarize it, kill it, you know, leave it there, you know, lest I say burn it or something. You know, obviously glyphosate's a hot button issue. But I think your point is well taken that keeping that in place is really critical. And I think one of the things we're finding now that once you do that, you are now exposing these urban environments to quite a bit more heating, right? I mean, those heavily paved systems, another ecosystem function that grass plays is that cooling ability, right? That water's moving through that system. And I'd argue it's right in line with what we're talking about. The lawns aren't the problem. It's the way we water them, Alec, to make them look a particular way. It isn't that we're watering it for traffic in a lawn. It isn't that we're watering it necessarily for playability, right? We're watering it essentially for aesthetics. And I would argue enough to keep some water moving through that system, much like a natural grass field is cooler than a synthetic field. I know you guys are getting hot and drier in the summer, Alec. Is there talk of some lawn removal or or some of this craziness up there in the Pacific Northwest? I I have not heard talk of lawn removal, but I would say it's very posh in the the hipster Pacific Northwest (laughs) to not water your lawn. 
if you drove through Portland and Corvallis, you would see a lot of hip people with brown lawns in the summertime because they're I not did. watering. I did. I did. <laughs> I did. I was in Portland a bit this summer, and I would say that even over there in some of the posh sections of where the University of Portland is, I saw some lawns uh, on the brown side. Not Kevin White's fields, of course, but definitely <laughs> the uh, some of the lawns there. All right, listen, let's wrap this up here and see if we can get some general thoughts. First, Claire, let's think about this as a general land use, right? Based on what you've learned, it sounds like you had a bit of an epiphany that, wow, turfgrass systems are actually pretty good at some of these things we didn't think they were good at. And so maybe it was refreshing to see that for you because you had a couple of aha moments. What are you telling some of your colleagues in the USDA that might not be as fond of turfgrass systems? when it comes to this particular issue? Honestly, the biggest question that's been burning a hole in my brain as a soil carbon specialist is what to do about these carbon markets and these voluntary incentive programs. My interest is in making sure that we don't undermine our own scientific credibility, suggesting that we can fight climate change by growing turf grass or implementing practices that sequester more carbon. I really want to be clear that we can't just sequester more carbon and not reduce emissions. And, you know, we talked a bit about the fact that this is just a finite storage. It'll last, this accumulation lasts a few decades. And then thereafter, our systems are emitting N2O and CO2. So when it comes to these voluntary incentive programs and carbon markets, I would encourage folks to think about there are also credits for nitrogen reduction. The Environmental Services Market Consortium is one group that is investing in payouts, credits for things beyond carbon, for water protection and nitrogen reduction. And of course, there are and have been energy efficiency kind of payments too. You know, seeing mowers go electric and and solar, I think, would be really helpful. Alec, let me ask you the same question. Claire did a nice job of speculating on some of these other ideas about carbon markets, uh, nitrogen credits, things like that. The Pacific Northwest, like many parts of the country, are seeing the impacts of climate change and dramatically shifting weather patterns. With everything changing the way it is up there, you guys having warmer, drier summers, it seems like asking for reductions or changing habits is a big ask when there's a lot of other moving pieces. When you walk about, and I know you're you know, interacting with the superintendents on a regular basis out there, you guys are totally connected. How do you reconcile what you're learning here with the challenges that you know lies ahead for the industry? Well, these are great questions, Frank. And I think, as Claire said, with the carbon budgets, you may be getting incentive to certify your golf course as a carbon sink. But the CO2 in the atmosphere has been going up despite the fact that your golf course has been there for the last 50 or 60 years. So on top of that, I think it's a responsibility of all of us to think of ways to reduce down our carbon budgets. Uh, There are governments that are giving incentives for 
solar power installation. Maybe you could put solar power at your golf course and use that as a way to reduce down your fossil fuel consumption, which is going to save you money in the long run. So to think of this as ways to improve our budget, consequently resulting in carbon sequestration, higher carbon sequestration potential as a way to communicate directly and quickly to people that are more what I would call instant gratification. Mm -hmm. I need this tax break. I need to make this cost less. I, I think that's another way to communicate this to people that may not agree with your ideas on carbon sequestration. If you can reduce fossil fuel consumption, you're saving money. If you can find turf grass species that require less nitrogen, you're saving money. If you can get a tax credit for using affluent water, you're saving money, but you're also helping the environment with all of these things. That's perfect. Three win-wins, right? Everybody wins in those uh, last three uh, scenarios that you outline. Alec, thanks so much for thinking of me, both of you two, thinking of our show here, reaching out and saying, let's chat about this. This is a bit of a departure from some of the other things we normally do, but I really appreciate both of your insight and the great work that you all have done in bringing this paper to publication and then coming on and having the conversation, making the information more accessible. Claire, Alec, appreciate you joining me. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thanks to Claire Phillips and Alec Kowaleski. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.